Welcome, everybody. Uh, Carrie here for Humane Voices. I'm really excited today uh, to welcome Claire Bass. Uh, Claire is the executive director of our UK office with the Humane Society International, our global partner. We're really excited to have her here. Humane Society International does incredible work all over the world, and Claire is one of the leaders of that effort. Uh, Claire, thank you so much for being here. What what time is it over there with across the pond? Hi, Carrie. Well, thanks so much for having me. Great to speak to you. It's uh, half past two in the afternoon here Excellent. in the UK. So nothing inhumane. I'm glad to hear. No, Sometimes no, we have our international team members in it on all hours of the night. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about what you've got going. I think one of the things that I, I see most um, of the work that you guys do, uh, you've got so much going on the fur issue right now. And I was curious, you know, I, obviously there's a lot of momentum in the UK around the fur issue. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you think has happened in the UK that kind of gave it that momentum and why that's been a big focus for you guys. Yes, I mean, our Fur Free Britain campaign is is one of our uh, lead campaigns for HSI UK. <clears throat> and um, and we started it a few years ago, um, largely because we were seeing a lot more fur on the high street. Uh, oh, interesting. Fur, uh, and also quite a lot of cheap fur. Um, and so this was back in, I guess, 2016, 17. Um, and we thought that's weird because we know that people, you know, the vast majority of people don't like fur and think it's cruel mm, and awful. Mm-hmm. So why are we suddenly seeing so much of it on market stalls and, you know, just all over the place? So we looked into it and found that a lot of real fur was being missold as fake fur. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, so people were kind of sleepwalking into buying, you Ugh. know, cool products that they wanted mm-hmm. to avoid. So that's where the campaign started. Um, and then when the UK left the European Union, uh, we then realised we had an opportunity to actually ban, you know, the, the import and sale of animal fur, um, and it's really taken off politically. Uh, we've got a lot of, you know, a lot of MPs supporting. Uh, we hope that fairly soon the government will be announcing plans uh, for a ban, uh, and it's come about, you know, really because of public opinion. Because you know we've done so many investigations in countries including uh, China and Finland. Um, just showing the appalling conditions that these animals are kept in on fur farms. Uh, you know, and you don't need to be a vet or a welfare expert to know that that's just wrong and people don't mm. want to buy products, you know, from animals that have been treated that way. So we've got public opinion on our side. And, um, you know, we banned fur farming here um, almost 20 years ago in the UK. So why are we paying people overseas, you know, to inflict the same suffering? Um, it just doesn't make sense. So, uh, yeah, that and all the designers dropping fur, you know, the fantastic work that HSUS does with uh, big global designers, um, you know, to get them to adopt fur-free policies. It just means, you know, um, it's a question of, uh, you know, when and not if the fur trade um, will be consigned to the history books, really. Yeah, that's fantastic. So just out of curiosity, I don't know if you can say a little bit more about like the impact of Brexit on this issue. I mean, that's pretty fascinating. Was there something about like the the UK's exit from the EU that that changed the dynamics around your ability to get the fur thing done? Yeah. So uh, as a member of the EU, um, you're bound by sort of um, <clears throat> a requirement for to allow free movement of goods and, mm-hmm. and people around uh, all of the countries within the European Union. So we because there are countries still in the European Union that farm animals for their fur, so like Finland, Poland, Denmark, Mm, as examples, mm -hmm. they produce fur, so therefore the UK, when it was a member of the EU, couldn't ban the the import or the sale of that product um, because it would be against the free free market uh, principles. But now as 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 an independent trading country, we can, yeah. 
Oh, that's great. Wow. So it sounds like you guys have got some other sort of Brexit connected issues around the farm, the farm issue. Is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead in our agenda here, but I, I think it's, it sounded like you, you're, you're dealing with some issues around um, trade in terms of animal welfare standards for farmed animals as well that are impacted by the sort of reg- trade regulations between countries. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, we are, um, I think, you know, one of the really big issues, well, for any country, but certainly for for the UK to be focused on at the moment is uh, trade, because to an extent, you know, it doesn't really matter if you put in place loads of fantastic animal protection laws, you know, that govern uh, your own farmers, for example, when producing, uh, you know, uh, products from farmed animals, if you then undermine that by allowing import of products produced to lower standards overseas, mm-hmm. then, you know, you've created a kind of race to the bottom, really. So, um, yeah, as an as a independent trading country outside of the EU now, we've been focused on making sure, trying to make sure that the government doesn't kind of, um, you know, sell its grandma effectively, you know, just say, oh, we'll do anything for a free trade deal, mm. um, including selling out on animal welfare. Um, and so things like, um, you know, not importing, uh, you know, eggs from battery caged hens, for example, um, or, you know, products treated with um, various hormones and um, things that are banned in the UK uh, is, yeah, is really is, is important. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, it's not only uh, important for animals and animal welfare, but it's also, you know, we've got a lot of common ground with farmers in the UK as well. Um, who don't want you know their livelihoods undermined by lower welfare uh, products from overseas. Absolutely. That's such an interesting case of like, you know, I think a lot of folks don't necessarily think a lot about how sort of trade trade policy impacts something like animal welfare. But but clearly, you know, you've got a case where if you if you aren't careful, you can create sort of a backdoor for these these lower standards, more humane, inhumane products if you're not if you're not cautious about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, um, we're we currently at the moment, the UK's uh, published a, a free trade agreement with Australia, um, mm. which would open up, uh, <clears throat> a, well, which would remove tariffs or, or create a sort of favourable market in the UK for um, various uh, products from Australian agriculture, including lamb. Mm. Um, and at the moment, um, <clears throat> I think around about 20% of U- the UK's lamb market is is um, provided by Australia. And it could mean that mm. it goes up to more like 40%. And why that's important is because Australia um, has lower welfare standards mm. for their lamb. So including think practices like mulesing, mm. uh, which yeah. is horrible. And then where the kind of back end of a lamb is, is sliced off to prevent fly strike. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, do we want to kind of open the door for that, you know, products like that and, and just turn a blind eye because we can't, you know, see it in our own backyard? Um, mm. No, we need to do better than that. Yeah, it seems like people who care about animal welfare sort of care about it globally. It's not like you want to, you know, create laws that that where, you know, just just the animals in this country are treated better. You want to make sure that it's applied as, as globally as possible. So I'm curious about um, the UK. You know, the UK is often ranked pretty highly um, in, in terms of countries, in terms of animal welfare standards. Is that something you generally agree with? Do you think, I mean, one of the things that I was really curious about is, you know, like you take a country like the United States, where I think there are a whole lot of things in the United States that would say we do pretty well on the welfare of pets. There's other places that I think we're not so good on. And so I'm curious about, you know, where the UK stands on some animals versus other animals. Is it is it good overall? Is it very specific? 
Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, the UK, you know, we sort of like to think of ourselves self-described kind of nation of animal lovers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the UK government is, is, is always talking about how it wants to be a world leader in animal welfare. And, you know, to, to a large extent, um, there is truth in that. You know, I mean, we certainly, we had the first ever animal protection laws dating back to um, 1822, um, and we have a really long history of, you know, laws to protect animals in, in different ways. Um, I think, you know, our my, my sense is that UK laws uh, to protect animals are obviously done at the national level, um, much more so than I think is the case in, in the US, although I'm no legal expert on, on, U, on US law. But, um, you know, so, for example, we would look to we're often looking to California um, as a real trailblazer, you know, kind of mm. setting the setting the the target on things like banning cages and crates and banning you know the sale of animal fur, and so we are citing California, you know, to the UK government to say mm. you know these guys are doing doing um, amazing things, whereas other parts of the US, uh, you yeah, know, so more, interesting, more yeah, focused. totally, <laughs> yeah, um, we do know, the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, big yeah. ag or whatever it is that's uh, that's occupying their minds. Um, yeah, God yeah, bless we'll, California. We'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll stick to California, but yeah. So um, I think you know we we are we are pretty good, but there's so much more to do. You know, there is for every country in the world. No country can say you know we've we've got this. It's all done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, and particularly for farmed animals, you know, what stays kind of out of sight and out of mind for for most people. Um, there's still horrors that happen you know on a right. daily basis and billions um, of animals yeah I mean yeah. it's just yeah. it's kind of overwhelming when you think about it totally yeah um so I'm curious you know one of the things that I know that we're working on in the U.S. and I know you guys are working on too is the issue around trophy hunting one of the things that I was curious about whether you see in the U.K. I mean I was thinking specifically about uh, the sort of outrage that was created around Cecil the lion when he was killed and the fact that it was this American dentist over there doing that do you guys see this sort of dynamic of British hunters kind of going abroad to to hunt and the kind of sort of uh, ensuing furor around that that activity. I mean, obviously, there's some sort of interesting roots around that, not only from an, uh, killing animals and animal welfare perspective, from but sort of a sort of back history of colonialism issue where you, like, do you see that kind of becoming a cultural thing? I mean, I, I'm, I know that, you know, they, I know that there's a long sort of history of hunting in the, in the UK, but I'm curious about what it looks like now. Yeah, I mean, we we still have a lot of problems for animals <clears throat> hunted in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, not um, tro- trophy hunting is not nearly as big a thing for uh, British people as it is apparently for American tourists. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we know that from the data, the CITES data that shows that so many more trophies are being imported into the US, you know, mm-hmm. than they are into the UK. But certainly it's an issue that really, really jars with the British public's, you know, sense of what's right and ethical and, you know, a decent thing to do. Um, And so we, you know, frequently have front page news stories in the UK of, you know, um, pictures of people like Walter Palmer, you know, Mm. wrapped around a a dead giraffe or something horrific like that. And people are absolutely disgusted, you know, as they should be. Um, and uh, so, you know, whilst whilst we're we're nothing like uh, the scale of the US in terms of the number of animals, um, you know, affected in 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 uh, imports, um, <clears throat> it is obviously really symbolic for the UK mm. to kind of say, uh, as the government has recently, um, you know, that they're going to put in place a really strong ban on the import of hunting trophies. 
Um, so they recently announced just a couple of weeks ago that um, they'll be banning the import of, I think it's almost 7,000 species that are wow. um, have got some kind of conservation concern attached to them. Um, <clears throat> and it will be, you know, a very robust ban with no loopholes. We, we fought off um, uh, a plan that the government had at one point to put in a, an exemption to allow uh, the import of trophies that that claim to have a conservation benefit, mm, you know, so right, if you right. go, you know, conservation, yeah, You know, if, mm. you, if you ask a five-year-old, you know, if you want to conserve something, should you shoot it? <laughs> <laughs> they they will tell you no. Um, it's not difficult, is it? So, yeah, um, yeah. We've fought that off, and it's yeah. Hopefully, in the next few months, we'll we'll have a really robust ban introduced. That's really exciting. I mean, so what's the likely timing of that? Well, we we don't know still. So mm-hmm. we're it, the likelihood is it wouldn't be introduced until kind of maybe May, June onwards. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to get it through because, um, <clears throat> you know, the hunting the trophy hunting lobby, as you guys in the US know in particular, yeah, you know, Safari Club International and friends are, mm-hmm. you know, very very vociferous, and they will not let this ban go through without, you know, a big fight. So we're ready for that fight. Yeah. Mm. Well, you mentioned, Claire, just as we were getting on that, right, even right now that there's debate over um, this animal welfare sentience bill. And I I was curious to find out from you. So can you talk a little bit just for for folks who may not be familiar with the term sentience, like what is the implication of of declaring animals to be sentient and the likely sort of legal impact on their welfare and how they're treated? Yeah. So the sentience bill is something we've been working on for a few years now. And um, what it does is, is two things chiefly. Uh, firstly, it recognises that animals are sentient, and in very simple terms, that just means that they are, uh, they have the capability to have feelings and emotions, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, pain, happiness, fear, mm-hmm. uh, you know, distress. Um, <clears throat> so it distinguishes, you know, uh, them from, say, a chair or a lettuce or uh, something like that. Um, you know, they have their own interests. And secondly, it says that um, because animals are sentient, we've got to, we have a requirement in law that when government is making laws and policies, that they need to take animals' welfare needs into account. Um, and that's uh, <clears throat> really important. Um, it replicates a provision in EU law that we lost when the UK left the EU. So we were very keen not to lose any ground mm. uh, as a result of, of Brexit. Um, and it actually goes a bit further in that it will create a new uh, animal sentience committee, so a, a statutory mm. body that will scrutinise <clears throat> whether government is, you know, is looking at animals' welfare needs uh, seriously enough. And that's across all policy areas. So oh, wow. That's everything incredible. from, you know, yeah, defence to trade to <clears throat> health, everything. Uh, and yeah, and it just means that animals, you know, interests are being seriously taken into account in policy making. So we're very excited by it. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about whether the UK is a leader, I mean, to me, that that sort of speaks for itself. I mean, the very fact that you've got this sort of action, I, from what I understand, that this is the sentience bill is just one piece of this bigger action plan for animal welfare. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I was curious when I was reading through it earlier, you know, is this something the government has actually produced that, that is kind of being driven by government or is being driven by government with sort of activists nipping at their heels or combination <laughs> of both or... Um, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, yeah, we we worked really hard on this with with some of our colleagues at other animal protection organisations, and uh, you know, we we put together a, a green paper um, last year, you know, with a big wish list of things mm. we wanted the government to do, 
uh, and the action plan was was the result. So we we were very pleased at that. I mean, you know, words words are easy, but actions, you know, are the important bit. So whilst whilst we're really pleased at the the pledges that have been made, you know, we need to see these now sort of turned into law. Um, and I think, you know, the reason that a big part of the reason that government has done this action plan, which is pretty broad in its scope, it covers, you know, uh, companion animals, farmed animals, wildlife, um, is that they know that animals matter to voters in the UK. Mm-hmm. You know, that when people get to the ballot box, um, they will not, you know, be many people will not be as inclined to vote for a party that has no plans to try to improve you know, animal welfare. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's a sort of issue embedded deep in the the British voters' psyche, and um, and that's why the government takes it seriously. That's great. So, in terms of sort of being embedded in the British psyche, I mean, like one of the things I think that one of the challenging issues, as you kind of alluded to earlier, around the issue of farm animals, is kind of one of those issues that get gets people where they live, gets people where they eat. I was curious about this, uh, the Forward Food Initiative that you guys work on. Can you talk a little bit about that? How you got involved in it? What that's been like for you? Yeah, sure. I mean, Forward Food um, is a really, really exciting program of work in the UK, and it's it's part of HSI's. Um, forward food is you know is running in, in several countries um, via HSI offices um, and really it's about um, it's about inspiring and enabling uh, chefs uh, who are working in big food service companies to serve up more plant-based food it's as simple as that really so we know you know that uh, our goal is to have um, less animals to reduce the number of animals that are suffering uh, on factory farms um, often you know in intensive uh, low welfare confinement systems um, <clears throat> and so one of the ways we can do that is simply to have you know less animals produced less animals being you know less demand for less mm-hmm. animals um, and we know also very categorically now that that's that's essential for the planet as well in terms of yeah. you know climate change impacts um, so you know HSI um, is I think a very kind of solution focused organization you know we we don't sort of uh <clears throat> you know, we don't just present companies with problems, generally speaking, mm-hmm. we'll sort of say, you know, here's a problem, what can we do to help you kind of yeah. fix it? Here's what you can do about um, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and you know, what we're doing to help them is is offering training. So we have an amazing mm. chef, Jenny, um, and a team who go, you know, to, uh, to chefs and meet them in their kitchens, train them on plant-based cooking, give them a toolkit um, with which to work to, you know, create tasty, um, nutritious plant-based meals. Um, and yeah, we've had tremendous success. We've got, you know, um, companies really, you know, basically queuing up to, um, mm. you know, to take part. Uh, and we do a greenhouse gas assessment as well, which helps them to show how they're meeting their cl- climate change um, commitments too, because when they serve up less animals, they, you know, they have a lower, lower greenhouse gas footprint too. So yeah, it's really exciting. Um, and we're hopeful that um, we can get the UK government to move a little bit in that direction as well uh, in the in the climate change um, narrative to start thinking about, you know, how can we have um, more sustainable diets and, and not make it like a, you know, it's more, more of a, a carrot approach than a stick mm. approach, like, because nobody likes to be told, you know, you yeah, can no eat. No one likes scolding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's not it's yeah. not about dictating diets it's just about making plant-based food more accessible you know more delicious and um yeah and so yep. people want want to take part 
That's great to hear. I, I've had this sense for a while that the UK is a couple years ahead of us in terms of how much plant-based has sort of entered the mainstream. I, you know, it's it's interesting to watch these developments and kind of like where they're picking up and where they're taking ground across the globe. Well, Claire, uh, it's been so great having you today. I wonder if just sort of to take us out, you could tell us a little bit about like your vision, HSI's vision in the UK for the future for the next five years. What are your big hopes about what you'll achieve and what things will look like for animals in, in five years from now? Sure. Yeah. Well, we've got a lot, uh, a lot on our wish list. Um, definitely making sure that the the new sentience bill is uh, is used to its fullest effect. So we'll be looking, you know, how that can really scrutinise what government's doing uh, and improving, you know, animal protection laws across the board as a result of that. Um, and I think one, you know, one of the really big things we we need to do in the UK is actually, you know, taking a, a leaf out of California's book is 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 banning uh, cages and crates. Mm. <clears throat> um, for animals like uh, you know uh, chickens and pigs on farms in the UK, they're still legal at the moment. We really want to to sort that out, um, and really kind of joining up the animal welfare narrative with uh, the climate change agenda, and and showing you know how livestock reduction um, you know can help both of those goals really improve animal welfare uh, and and improve our chances of having a, a livable planet in the future as well. So really huge huge issues. We have uh, yeah. yeah big ambitions. Uh, and, and a fur ban, of course, and a trophy hunting ban. Um, Just a few yeah. little things to tick off the list. <laughs> yeah. We like to keep ourselves busy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Claire, this has been terrific. Uh, thank you so much for being here, everyone. Um, this is Carrie signing off with Claire Bass, Executive Director of HSI in the UK. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time on Main Voices. <laughs>